Mama, tell me what your trauma is. Dramedy, dramedy. Hey, pretty lady, shake it with your shady now. Dramedy, dramedy. Welcome back to the Dramedy Podcast. Uh, that was uh, a great intro, and we can't deny that. And I wanted to talk to everybody out there and say thanks for listening to another episode. And also tell you, I'm really sorry that it's taken so long for put, putting out another podcast. Um, I think uh, that this podcast kind of means a lot to me. And it's also flying in the face of a, a newly changed protocol in my county. And I didn't want to um, be, uh, you know, uh, a malcontent when it came to you know, a new thing that's going on, a new protocol, and you know, and, and I didn't want to necessarily, you know, speak against why they've eliminated this protocol. But I think it's important to bring up what we're losing when we lose the protocol, what, what types of possibilities are now being lost. And what I'm going to talk about today is the elimination of pediatric intubation in Santa Clara County. Pediatric intubation means we, we don't have the ability to uh, use an intubation tube on children any longer. Um, this has been a long time coming. They have uh, kind of told us officially and, in, and unofficially, it's not necessary, you don't need to do it, you can use just a basic bag valve mask and maybe an OPA, but we don't have to use that intubation tube. Well, that's probably true in 90% of the calls that we, we, we go and we respond upon. But there are some crucial situations where that seldomly used skill is absolutely a life-saving measure. And now we've lost that skill. And I think it's due to several things. One of them is the fact that they have been trying to filter this out for a number of years uh, because of the, uh, the difficulty in doing it, because of the rarity in which we do it, uh, because of the money it takes to stock these intubation tubes that rarely get used, and therefore when their expi- expiration date uh, comes around, we have to buy a brand new set of these tubes that weren't used in the first place. And the big one, the big reason is that paramedics don't know how to do this and are, are, are psyched out when it actually is, is a crucial, absolutely life-saving step. And, I, and, and there's a couple of things to, to, to think about here. One is, well, it's the monetary factor. And I don't think that money should be ever, and of course I'm not, it's not from my bankroll, but uh, I don't think that money should, should be the ruling factor when it comes to life, number one. And number two is, well, statistics are going to show you things because statistics always show you what you want statistics to show. Mark Twain said, there are, there's the truth, there's lying, and then there's statistics. And statistics have been weighted against pediatric intubation since, oh, I'd say 12 years ago, when they first told us, don't worry about doing this, you don't have to do intubations. On, on children 
and that's that's changed everything um and that's going to weigh those statistics one way or the other and the third is the fact that there is an incompetent number of paramedics that don't know how to do it when life is on the line and that's something we can change i think about the old days of paramedicine back in the early 70s when they first allowed paramedics to do advanced life support in a pre-hospital setting meaning they could start IVs they could intubate for the first time and they could give medication and they could intub and they could uh, defibrillate as well and that came with a lot of uh, a long slog of 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 trusting that paramedics had the competency to do it and that that care in the pre-hospital setting was efficable, would save lives, in other words. And, and of course, we all know, you know, if you've ever taken a basic CPR defibrillation class, all they teach you is that the sooner you can defibrillate and provide CPR, the sooner and the better the outcome is for that patient. Now, this this was a, uh, a skill that a lot of medical directors and a lot of doctors said we should not be giving to paramedics out there. And, in fact, one of the first um, transmissions or transmitting uh, data on a fax machine-type cell phone was done back in the 70s where they would have these defibrillators that had the capability of sending data to the hospital where a doctor would look at that cardiac rhythm and say yes that is a that is a shockable rhythm you can charge your monitor to you know I think at that point it was a monophasic so you could charge it to 200 joules and shock and then you have to transmit the results to us at the hospital and I will tell you what to do next. And it's only because of, because of the excellence of those paramedics and the efficiency and the proficiency of them to be able to operate in a high-stress situation. And many of them were coming back from Vietnam. Uh, a lot of them, most medics were, were medics in the military that came out and, and became medics in the civilian life. It was only due to the fact that those people could operate in a high-stress environment and still perform and complete the tasks that the protocols changed. That's why we have these kind of skills now. It's only by, by us standing on the shoulders of those giants, you know, as Newton, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's only because of their excellence that we're able to have the protocols that we have today. Now, those people are getting old. Those people now, those medics that gave us these skills, these life-saving treatments and measures that we are able to do, are now getting sick, and they're the ones having the heart attacks. They're the ones having strokes. Their children and their grandchildren are the ones that we have to provide incredibly good patient care for because we owe it to them that we have this system in place now. And I feel that if we're losing this skill, as we've lost several other skills in the past, we are not performing 
to our utmost to protect them and their progeny. We can talk about a couple of those skills. One of them uh, that we no longer have is the ability to do a cricothyronomy. In other words, uh, take a scalpel, cut into the trachea. If the upper airway is damaged, let's say somebody has been in a uh, large car accident and their face has so much trauma that we can't intubate in the conventional way going through the mouth because it is so uh, catastrophically damaged that the only way that we could find a guaranteed airway is by cutting into the cricothyroid membrane between the thyroid and the cricoid cartilage in the throat and using a scalpel to do that, to cut in and go in through the throat. Uh, we've lost this scalpel because uh, a lot of doctors said that is a, that is a quote-unquote surgery. You should not be able to use surgical skills as a street medic uh, because it, there's, the risk is too high. Well, why? Why is the risk too high? Well, look all around the, the trachea. Touch your trachea right now. You feel that thing, the throat thing, right? <sighs> You're breathing through it. Uh, if you want to, find your Adam's apple. That's the thyroid cartilage. Slide your finger from your Adam's apple down, and you'll find another hard cartilage there. Okay? Now, right in between there, if you just kind of push, you'll find this semi uh, hard membrane there. Well, that's just some tissue that we could go right into with a tube if your face was damaged or let's say that you had some kind of smoke inhalation where everything swelled up at that point above there. Or let's say you had an anaphylactic reaction, which kids are very prone to have if you have allergies. And we know that there is such a high influx of childhood uh, allergies uh, to the point where they're, they're entire, they, they'll suffocate if we don't take care of that. If we have lost the skill to go into that spot with a scalpel, uh, we're not going to be able to provide them with air. And as you know, children usually have cardiac arrest due to respiratory issues, due to some sort of uh, issue, uh, impediment to them getting oxygen because well, okay, they have brand new hearts. Their hearts still have that new car smell, you know. And if they, you know, the very rare situation is they have some sort of cardiac issue. The big reason why kids start, stop having a heartbeat is because they've been starved of air. Drownings is a big one. Drownings. Um, or traumas to that. Or ana anaphylactic shock. Now we are losing that skill be able to perform what is necessary to get them air. So what we've gone to is a needle, a, 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 you know, a, a small, a large needle in terms of needles, but a small airway in terms of airways. And because of this, we're going to lose the ability to save these, these rare occasions where we need to use that skill. And now, why is this happening? Why, why is this occurring? And I think it has to go down to those, those factors that I've spoken about. The big one is uh, that monetarily, it doesn't make sense for a county to have to stock all of the equipment, all of those tubes, to do intubations. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, the reason why we lost that 
cricothyrotomy through scalpel. And the big reason I would have to say, besides monetary reasons, is that it's just too dangerous to go into the trachea with the scalpel and cut around because there's the carotid arteries on both sides that are spraying blood up into the brain. And you could nick that artery if you're using a scalpel, you know, ineffectively if, if without an expert, an expert hand. And, or the jugulars. And so when things go wrong, paramedics that aren't capable of handling a high-stress situation and don't know the anatomy and haven't been trained to the level of excellence that those previous medics had been trained on and, and knowing how to operate in those situations where life's on the line. And yes, your, your skills are required to save someone's life they're not performing and they've caused damage while trying to save a life. They've nicked an artery and the patient has possibly bled out uh, and they've caused more, more, more harm than good. Now, they've gotten rid of that scalpel. We don't get to use that scalpel anymore. We've gone to an ineffective tracheal needle to go in and that's not effective. And so in many counties, they've just gotten rid of cricothyrotomies altogether, saying, well, it doesn't show any efficable success. And so because of that, there's just no reason to do that. Well, yes, that makes sense because you've taken away the effective tool, the scalpel, to go in and cut a hole large enough to put a tube in. You've given us a stir stick, a needle that's basically the size of a swizzle straw to go in there. And you're not going to be able to pump enough air in there and you're not going to be able to get enough air exhaled out through that needle. Imagine trying to breathe through a stir straw. You're not going to be able to pull that off for very long before you go unconscious and before your body becomes hypoxic. And of course the outcomes for those are not going to be favorable. So the, that skill has been taken away. So it's partially because of the ineffective uh, expertise of paramedics and then the reflection of that in statistics. Now, they started to do this with pediatric intubation. There's a couple of issues with that. It's, it's that uh, we rarely do it. And because of that, we're not seeing statistics that show a favorable result. In fact, when I was a reserve in Tiburon back in 2005, uh, we would go to a lot of seminars and they would say to us, uh, pediatric intubation is not that necessary. And in fact, you could pull it all, mostly you could do it all with just putting one of those masks on a patient with a bag. It's called a bag valve mask. I, I know I'm, I'm trying to speak to both audiences here, those that are versed in EMS and those that are not. And we could just do that, and that works just as well as anything else. But what about those few times where that airway is blocked and closed up because of burns or because of trauma or because of allergic reaction and swelling and inflammation? Well, those people don't make it those kids aren't going to have a favorable outcome. And they, they're looking at the statistics, the statistics on this, and saying, 
it is such a small percentage of children that have that injury in the first place that we're not going to take that into consideration. And here's my issue with that. Aren't those situations the situations that allowed those medics and showed the hospitals and the doctors and the medical directors who make those protocols for the paramedics, the, the, the instances that gave us the skills to not have to call the hospital, show them the cardiac monitor, tell them, this is a cardiac arrest, we're seeing ventricular fibrillation, then we have to transmit the, the information to the hospital. This takes minutes. They send back on the radio, yes, go ahead and shock that. We've already gotten to that step. We know it's that. We're sitting in the field. Give us the, the okay. Give us the go-ahead to just treat what we see. Don't you trust us? Haven't I proven to you that we know what we're doing? And we have those skills. We shouldn't have to call you every time we need to use them. And we should be trusted to know when an intubation is necessary and when it's not. My fear is that we're letting down those paramedics. We're letting down those people when they may actually need it in their time, in their event. We're not going to have those skills that they fought long and hard to get. And the other thing is this, I think that when we provide a safety net for paramedics, we eliminate the need for them to perform to an excellence. And I'll use another example. Uh, when it comes to adult intubation, we don't have to do that successfully any longer because we have these other devices that we can use. We can use something called a king tube or an LMA where you don't have to put it into the trachea. And what it takes, so let me just, let me just backtrack and tell you what it takes. You have to use what's called a laryngoscope. And the laryngoscope is this, it's this device you hold in your left hand and you, it's got a sweeping blade on it that you go on your unconscious pulseless apneic patient, meaning no pulse, no breathing, you take their jaw and their tongue and with this blade you move it out of the way so that you can see down the throat into the trachea and there's a couple of different little uh, landmarks that you look for, we call them landmarks, little geographical, anatomical, uh, you know, uh, um, little features that we look for. One is the arytenoid cartilage, another one is the uh, epiglottis. And, of course, if you can see it, uh, amazing, you can see the, the actual voice box. You can see the, the larynx. You can see the vocal cords. And if you see that, and if you pass that tube down into that airway and inflate that cuff, boy, you have a guaranteed airway on that patient. They could throw up. They could bleed. They could move around. But if you have that tube inside there, they're not going to move around, but we could move them around. If you have that then you have an airway all the way to the hospital and you are guaranteed oxygenation of that patient. Now, when I did the paramedic school back in 05, it was something that I trained on all the time. When I had five minutes extra, I'd go into the airway room and I would grab that mannequin and I would, and I would do it. And I learned how to do it the best 
with my with my anatomy, with my skills, how I can pull that off as best as I can pull it off. I would take that mannequin, put him down on the floor, and I would do intubation that way. I would uh, I, I would try it with the lights off. Try it all different sorts of ways. We had time and we had uh, availability to to do that in my class, which is why I always think, just a little side note, why paramedic school shouldn't be six months long. That's that's ridiculous, and you need to familiarize yourself with all of these skills in in a personal way. And you have to get your own way of doing things. You have to develop your own skill at pulling this off, right? Now, I also teach at San Francisco City College, and I'm allowed to go in and show the classes how to do uh, intubation. And I get paid to do it. So I talk about this, and I say, you know, you all should be taking these classes and remediation classes or what we call seldom-used skills in, uh, in, in my department or uh, as some people call them, rust, rarely-used skills, testing, rust skills. And... And I get paid to do it because I get to teach a class. But what I'm, what I'm trying to uh, advocate for is that all paramedics have an intubation mannequin at their stations or their deployment yard. And above that, they have to do some training on it. Just every time we do some kind of skill, seldom use skills, just go and throw five tubes. Just do it five times, you know, and learn the efficiency. Now, what I'm saying is uh, I don't think it's fair that I get paid to do that, but I'm asking all of you medics to do that for free or maybe even have to pay for a class to do it. But really, most of the time, your company's going to reimburse you for it, and it's about the patience, man. Come on. Do it. Get out there, you know, practice, 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 practice. You're bored? Practice, practice. You shouldn't be bored. You shouldn't be bored. Don't be bored. That's why I always say get into a busy system. Work, work, work. Do it, do it, do it. Don't get to the point of, you know, exhaustion and burnout. But you know when there's that thing nagging on you and you go, man, I missed that tube. I got to go. I don't know if I'm really good at it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's your mind telling you, you need to go practice. And that's what's going to save these skills. And that's what's going to save these people. And that's what's going to keep these protocols for us medics to do our job to the, to the potential that we have. We have this capability to save lives. And it should not be from the loss of our skills and our a loss of excellence that we start losing uh, patience. And so when we talk about like something like, well, you don't have to necessarily intubate. If you miss it, you can use this King tube or you can use this LMA. And it basically just sits at the back of the throat and it blows air towards the trachea, it blows air towards the larynx, but it doesn't go inside. And when you have issues where they're burned and they're tissues are swelling in that throat it's not going to do any good using an LMA or using a king tube you need to be able to perform and put in that intubation tube and when you know life is on the line you have to you have to you have to rise to the level 
of an emergency caregiver. You have to rise to that, to why they're paying you for the job, why they're giving you this, the, the money. You know, that's why the public loves us. So I feel that if you provide a safety net, you also provide for someone to not rise to a level of excellence that we are, uh, well, that we're called upon to give to the public, why the public loves and trusts us. And I don't like that, to say the least. I don't like the fact that our incompetence is causing the loss of protocols, the loss of these skills to be uh, allowed in our scope of practice, and ultimately that patients will suffer. And so when it comes down to pediatric intubation, I know that it's difficult. It's a totally different airway. Uh, it's more difficult to see those landmarks that I talked about, the arytenoid cartilage and the epiglottis is larger on children because they, they start off bigger on children and your body grows around it to, you know, to, to become the anatomical uh, uh, dimensions that we are in an adult. And so those things get in the way. They can, they can bog you down. They can confuse you. But that's not an excuse. We should also have pediatric mannequins at fire stations and at deployment centers where the, the ambulances are deployed from. And we should provide seldom use skills on a regular basis, even if that's not the subject for those seldom use skills that, skills that day. You should still have the pediatric intubation mannequin out there so that guys and girls can throw the tube in and just practice. Boom, 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 five times, get out, and then do whatever skill is necessary. That is why I feel that we're lacking in this now and, and why we're losing this skill. Now, now, having read the PowerPoint of why they are eliminating pediatric intubations, they go into... The first thing they go into is that uh, monetarily we're going to save a large amount of money because we don't have to keep restocking this equipment that doesn't get used in the first place because of the rarity of these, this need to do it. So the county is going to get some money back and it's going, you know, I don't know. It almost feels like to me like when, when uh, somebody's in financial crisis and the first thing they do is cut down on toilet paper and they go from double ply to single ply and they go well that's going to solve it how about how about we start training them to use the equipment effectively uh-uh a little bit of work goes a long way a little bit of more self-actualization a little bit more of a, you know proactive patient care and, and training is going to show the medical director or the county at large who's buying this equipment. Well, when we do need to use this, and again, I bring up those situations where it's a pediatric having an allergic reaction and they need to get intubated. Otherwise, we're not going to have that skill. Or a newborn that has maybe meconium uh, issues and we need to tube this patient get in there and suction, suction, suction with the soft suction through that tube. We know how to do it. 
Yes, it's a very rare occasion that we go on births. Yes, it's a rare occasion that we have to intubate a child. We can give medication to, to, to take care and counteract that. But when we need to be able to do that, we have to be able to do that. And so I can't, I can't, as a, as a street paramedic, I can't fight against what a county is going to do with their budget. I can, I can help with training. What I can do to solve the situation is train more and have the medics train on doing pediatric intubations so that if they're going to look at unsuccessful numbers and statistics, those unsuccessful statistics are going to be much, much lower. And the success rate when it's necessary to provide this skill are much higher. Now, I don't know what else to say about this other than we only can control what we can control. And, and I understand why these, these, these protocols get streamlined and moved around. But I don't agree with them. And I don't think that it's right that someone's uh, ineffective abilities in this job are going to cost people, people their lives and children their lives, most importantly. And those, you know, paramedics or those medical directors that have children, and I, and I don't want to do this, but, you know, when it's your kid, don't you want us to have this skill? Now, I'm wondering, you know, I always look at this and I think, I wonder if those doctors, those medical directors, those, those, those people that are out there that are making these rules, I wonder, you know, if they're, they're doctors, do they have their own home intubation kits? Because that's what I would do. If I just made a protocol change where I've eliminated a life-saving skill and I had children at home, I would certainly bring or buy uh, bring home from the hospital or buy my own set of intubation equipment for my kid if if that rare situation occurred where I needed to perform that skill presented itself because I don't think I'd ever forgive myself if something happened and I didn't have the tools and the paramedics that arrived there because of your your change in protocols said, well, sorry, we can't uh, intubate him, you know, and you know why. I, I, I would, I would, I would lose it. I, I, I you know, and, and I think that uh, all of you would, if you knew that there was a skill that could do, that could save your child's life, but it's not allowed in the county, uh, don't you think you would be a little bit lost in your frustration, anger, sorrow, you, don't you think it would just destroy you? And I don't want to end, I don't think that that's, I don't want to end this in, in, in a negative term, you know, and, and I, like I said, I, I believe that this needs to be solved on the medic level, where the boots hit the ground. I propose that we train medics on a regular basis, on a monthly basis. We have some kind of maybe an incentive to do it. Uh, how about this? In the firehouses, in the, in the, in the deployment yards, you have a contest. 
who can get the intubation the fastest, who gets it the most effective, the most efficiently, and, and the fastest. And those who win, they get a $5 Starbucks card or something. I don't like Starbucks. But I'm not going to put them out there. I'm gonna, maybe Pete's, maybe, maybe Phil's. You give some kind of incentive to people to learn the skills and you get them trained and you under, and you teach them why, albeit a small, random, uh, rare time that you're going to have to do this when they need to, they, they feel comfortable in doing that. And that only comes with practice and that only comes with a confidence on the fire line. Like I said, these guys run and girls run into the fires. They are going on pediatric codes a lot. They should be able to perform under fire, you know, and lit literally and figuratively. And I believe that those people that first got our protocols established would be proud to see that we are continuing the tradition of excellence. Now, you can write to me anytime you feel appropriate and tell me what your thoughts on this are. Uh, feel free to email me at unitet at hotmail.com. The old school, the old die hard in the wool, hotmail.com. Unitet at hotmail.com. That's unitet because of the studios that I uh, work under. In fact, it's a beautiful day at unitet studios right now. I'm just staring out across the uh, beautiful landscape of, of mountains and, and Marin redwoods and, uh, and I'm a lucky man and uh, unitet at hotmail.com I'll be able to get your opinions on this voice however you feel about it and you tell me do you think that I'm out of control you think, you think that this is an unreasonable request to not eliminate skills but to train medics up to their level of excellence regardless of statistics because as i said these statistics are already already been they've already been affected by what they have told us to do in the past and so it's not going to reflect the actual times and the need during those rare times to perform this. Please write to me, okay? I, I love you, and that's all I had to say about this, and, and, I, and I don't know if I mentioned this on this version of it, but uh, I will be talking to the medical director of Santa Clara County about this and many other things in podcasts to come. So I'd love to have your input and love to be able to um, give him some of your information and some of your insight on this. I love you very much. My name's Kenneth Allen, and uh, thanks for listening. Please tell everybody about Charmony Podcast. Remember, it's all in you, and if you got it, use it, and everybody benefits. Love you. Take care. Take care.